Today's Bible reading is taken from John chapter 15, verses 1 to 17, and can be found on page 1083 in the Pew Bibles. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, love each other. In our prayers for others this morning, we're gonna pray for Frank and Claire. Frank is in Newry Presbytery this week and uh, today he's in Newry uh, preaching this morning. So let's pray and bring our prayers for our world before the Lord, so let's pray together. Father God, in an environment and world that appears to be more uncertain, which has much fear and resentment and intolerance, we pray to you, Lord God, who can measure the waters of the world in the hollow of his hand, and with the breath of his hand mark off the heavens. Father, we thank you that the nations are like a drop in the bucket to you. They are regarded as dust on the scales, because there is no one compared to you no nation greater. And so we rejoice that you are in charge because you are just, you are loving, you're holy, you're righteous and good in your character and ways. We pray that your will will be done here on earth as it is in heaven for your glory and honor. Father, today we pray for those Muslim families who lost loved ones through the shooting at the mosque in Quebec. We pray that they will have the space and 
place to mourn that this act of violence and evil will not make them more fearful than they are, that you will not uh, allow them to become hateful or bitter. We pray for them. We pray for this young student who committed this crime. Lord, have mercy on him. May his time under arrest and his imprisonment bring him in contact with the gospel of your son, we pray. Father God, we pray for Frank and Claire today as they go to Nuri. We pray for wisdom and encouraging words as Frank speaks at King's Mills tonight. We pray that that place and community would know the hope of the gospel, the healing power of God's mercy and grace. We pray, Father, to be with Frank, give him a word and season from your word, and graciously use his visit for your own glory and honor. Father, this morning we pray for those things that we're concerned for, those individuals that, uh, Lord, we love, and we pray for those, that n those needs that nobody else knows of, and we want to bring them in silent prayer before you now. Father, hear our concerns, hear our thanksgiving to you, for we ask it in the name of him who is the way, the truth, and the life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you'd like to take a pew Bible and turn with me to page 1083, there you'll find John chapter 15, and this morning we're looking at verses 1 to 17, with the title, Abide in Him. So page 1083, if you want to have that open in front of you, it would be very helpful to you and to me. Let me pray for us as we come to God's Word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the words of our closing hymn this morning. Then your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me through the gospel of your son, gave me endless hope and peace. Father, as we come to John chapter 15 this morning, would your spirit open the word to us? Will you help us apply it to our lives that we may fail, find life in the Lord Jesus, who is your son? Lord, bless our time in your word, we ask. For we ask it in your son's name. Amen. Amen. I want you this morning to imagine that you have some of these in your hand. It'll come up on the screen, hopefully. Um, yesterday was a disaster at the wedding with PowerPoint, so uh, let's see if we can get the screen up. Imagine in your hand you have seeds, okay? Um, and imagine you're going to take a few moments and you say, I'm going to plant these seeds. And you're going to plant them, but you're going to plant them with hope that in the next few months, these very seeds will grow, will show some fruit, or even blossom. But in between that time of hoping, you wait, and you wait, and a little shoot comes up, and it starts to flourish, and then other little offshoots begin to grow, and suddenly it takes off, and you're so proud of it, you're so excited about it, you're so delighted that it's producing some um, fruit or blossom, but what if the opposite happened, where you plant some of these seeds, it grows and it flourishes for a time, and then gradually it wilts, it struggles, and it fades, and it dies away? 
It's, it's a hard expectations dashed, hopes gone. And for many, this story or picture can be the reality of your lives, our lives, where there was once great expectation, life was flourishing with the Lord, priorities were right, but they wilted, faded, and died slowly. But you know something this morning? It was exactly the same situation for God's people in the Old Testament at one stage, where we find that God rescued a people for himself, called them. He even referred to him as his son. But in the book of Isaiah, they're called something else. Listen to Isaiah chapter 5 and what the Lord calls his people. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And listen to what God has done for his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a winepress as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes. Here was God cultivating, clearing the stones away, getting the people ready for his purposes, that they would produce a good crop, good fruit. They were to be his treasured possession. Do you remember that from Exodus? His faithful and loyal people. They were to be the light to the nations around him. They were to be a people that others would come to and become part of. But these verses in Isaiah finish by saying this. He looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Or in the words of Isaiah or Jeremiah, it says this, I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock, but how then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? Bad fruit came from them because their heart and their loyalties towards God were elsewhere. They were misplaced. They were unfruitful to God, his word, their idolatry and their pursuit of other things. They became inward looking, stimulated, stimulated into the culture around them rather than being outward focused on God and grafting others into the community. The vineyard didn't produce a good crop, but instead yielded a bad, bad crop. And God dealt with them through their judgment in the Old Testament it's a sad narrative of such hope and expectations that were shattered to utter sadness and disappointment, a bit like the seed that we described in the story. However, for the people then and for us here today, the good news is that God promised another son who would come, a true son who would bring hope, who would rescue who would come to live the life of obedience and love to his father that the people in the Old Testament and us here today couldn't reach on. The son would show people God. He would invite others in to be part of the family of God. And when the son came, we read the words from his mouth in John chapter, one, verse 15, chapter 15, verse 1. Do you see it in front of you? Don't miss it. I am the true vine. Jesus is the true vine. And in John's gospel, you have replacement theology all the way through it, where Jesus is the replacement of Israel in the Old Testament. That was God's vineyard in the Old Testament. But they failed. 
But that vineyard was always looking for someone greater, someone better. And Jesus here in John 15 turns to his disciples who would have known those Old Testament passages. And he says to them, I am the true vine. I'm the one that's going to be loyal to God, obedient to him. He loves God the Father who has sent him. Listen to how Jesus, the true vine, communicates this love and obedience. He says in John 4, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what the father is doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. John 6, I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. John 8, the one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I'm always do what pleases him. The Old Testament vineyard didn't do this. Jesus comes and he says, I'm the true vine. I am the replacement. I am the true vine, the vineyard of God. Jesus is the one in which the nations and people will be engrafted into. This happens when individuals like you and I accept and receive Jesus and his words by faith. We're brought in to the life of Jesus, the true vine. That's why he says in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Back in chapter 13, he told Peter, unless I wash you, Peter, you have no part of me. People like you and I can be brought in or grafted in to the true vine who is Jesus to be his people and witness. The question is, have you known what it is to be united to Christ, to be grafted into the true vine? Have you accepted Jesus as the Son of God, who is your Lord and Savior, part of him? Have you been grafted into his life by his forgiveness, mercy, and grace? Because if you haven't, then these verses that we're going to look at this morning are not possible for you. You may even see them as a task. I have to remain in Christ. He'll remain in me. That's a transaction. That is not what this passage is all about. It starts by telling, you are the branches. I am the true vine. We need this true vine, this Jesus, who invites us to come, to be part of him, to receive new life in him. Jesus this morning is saying to us, I am the true vine, which is good news for us. But the end of verse 1, he says, my father is the gardener, or probably better understood as the farmer in verses 1 and 2. We're coming into that time of year, aren't we? Well, if you own a garden, where you need to tidy it up, don't you? You probably let it run now for three or four months, but it needs a tidy up. It's beginning to look miserable, and you're thinking the dog and the cat and the kids need to get out there in the summer. It needs to be tidied up. In Bangor, where we live, we moved into a house. It'll be two years in the summer. And for the first time, we have a garden, a back garden. And we have even things called hedges, right? And for the first time, believe this or not, I love cutting the grass. I love taking out the lawnmower. I love even better the strimmer to do the hedges. Um, there's nothing as therapeutic as doing hedges, I think, with a strimmer, isn't there? I think of some of you, and I just cut the hedges, you know, straight off. Um, that's a joke, by the way, all right? But I find it very therapeutic. I find the, the task of doing something and finishing it and seeing it lovely, even if it takes hours, brilliant. I love it. But the task of grass cutting, strimming, weeding has to be done, doesn't it? And the question you have to ask is, why do we do it? 
so that we get rid of the rubbish, the dead wood, the weeds, so that you give space for the good things, the other things to flourish and grow and bear fruit. And here in John chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, God the Father is the gardener, and he's involved in two things. Have you spotted them in verses 2? He cuts off and he prunes. Do you see it in verse 2? He, that is God, cuts off every branch in me that does not bear fruit. He prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. God is in the business of cutting off and pruning. The reason for God cutting and pruning has to do with fruit, bearing fruit. The branch is cut off because it doesn't bear any fruit, and then he prunes other branches so that they'll bear more fruit. Fruitfulness being, is the evidence of belonging to Jesus, the true vine. If branches are connected with the vine, it helps them to grow. And it's the same idea here with being a follower of Jesus. You've been grafted into the union with Christ Jesus for a purpose. It is to bear fruit. And that's the importance of it here. But what kind of fruit is it? Galatians chapter 5 tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love. It is joy. It is peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. These are the fruit, the evidence of God's Spirit living in a Christian so that their heart, their attitude, their life is reflecting that God lives in them, that I'm connected with the true vine. And this type of fruit can be seen. Do you believe that? Because I was thinking about this. We sometimes go, how can we, how can we measure? Well, Paul could write to Colossae, the church in Colossae, and he says this, all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and all the truth. The fruit of the gospel is, is visible. It is evident. It shows itself. God brings people such as you and I into union with Christ so that the gospel would bear fruit in our lives. Listen, listen to what Carson says about this, he, about this verse. He says, the transparent purpose of the verse is to insist that there is no true Christian without some measure of fruit. Fruitfulness is an infallible mark of true Christianity. It is the purpose and will of God that all who are connected to Jesus, the true vine, will bear fruit. God is committed to that. He's committed to that purpose and intended result. That is why verse 8 says, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Bearing fruit is not an end in itself, but rather its intended outcome is to bring glory to God. So that when people look at the local church, so when people look at your life as a Christian, they will go, praise God. Praise God that that fruit is evident in your life. This happens because as Jesus says himself in verse 4, no branch can bear fruit by itself. Being fruitful, bearing fruit is about bringing glory to God. Fruit and God's glory are inextricably linked. Dead people made alive, engrafted into Jesus the true vine, bearing fruit in some measure brings glory to God because we could never do this ourselves. But we see the opposite in verse 2, don't you? The branch that doesn't bear fruit is cut off. This morning, I went over Craig Antlet. <laughs> I got out, and I tell you what, I, picked up, I, could have picked up, I could have picked up hundreds of these in Craig Antlet. Belmont Road, if you come down along it by Campbell College, you'll see tons of these. And you know what? 
Some of them are big. Others are little puny things. But you know what? It's useless. It is useless now, isn't it? Once grafted into the tree. But now, you know what? Ian Simons could take this home, put it in the fire, and burn it. It's useless. It's not good for anything. And that's what this verse is saying. The branch that bears no fruit is cut off. This only happens if the branch is no longer grafted to the source of water, oxygen, and life from the vine. And so it cannot and does not produce any fruit. Do you see verses 5 and 6? Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. They are useless and only good for throwing into the fire. It doesn't matter what size they are, what they've done. If you don't remain or stay connected to Jesus, he cuts off. God makes that evaluation. God knows a loving warning to us, I think, in some ways, that he cuts off branches that bear no fruit. But do you also see what he does in verse 2? He prunes. I don't know about you, we have a rose bush, and I'm told by somebody here in the congregation that I need to be cutting it in February and March time. I don't know if you've done some pruning. Pruning is a bit of a weird thing, isn't it? Because after pruning something, it can look quite miserable, can't it? And you wonder, have I cut it back too much? Perhaps I should have left some more, but amazingly, over time, the plant begins to flourish again. It comes into full bloom, possibly bearing more fruit than it ever did in the past because of the pruning. And if you're a Christian here today, the Bible is telling us here that God prunes. God prunes those who belong to his son, Jesus. That pruning can be difficult. It can be painful. It can be disorientating. It may even cause you to doubt the sovereignty and love and goodness of God, the gardener. But his pruning is for a purpose, so that you will bear even more fruit. Let me ask you this morning, has God's pruning scissors been active and evident in your life? The last couple of months, and even the last month for, for Sarah and I, particularly, we've had a couple of deaths that have happened with people that we know and I, and I often wonder, what's the Lord teaching us here? And I can tell you this, it just makes you think, life is short. Life is so short and fragile. The principal of the Oak Hill Theological College died of heart attack 58, dropped dead. What a life he had of influence in students, but gone at 58, too early. And yet God has taken him home to be with himself. And it says to you, it, it sharpens us, it prunes the last couple of months here in the church, we've had to contend with sickness, multiple deaths, bad news, worries, disappointments, joys and delights. And there can be times where you ask, Lord, what are you doing here at this moment? What are you teaching us? Could it be that through these circumstances, these highs and lows over these last months, that God is shaping us? He is molding, he's trimming all those distractions back cutting out those things that we trust in, like our health, our wealth, our family, our reputation, our dreams even, is God pruning and weeding out those attitudes of superiority, arrogance, pride, self-sufficiency? Is God pruning us so that we understand sin better, forgiveness, the hope of glory to come, the resurrection life, or is he just stealing our commitment to follow him and his word because there's no other way when you get pruned back, you go, you know what the priorities are? Following him and keep on going. The pruning of God doesn't often feel good, 
It's unpleasant, it's uncomfortable, and if truth be told, it's not what we really want. And yet this verse today is saying to us that God, our heavenly Father, is the gardener who cuts off branches, but he also prunes every Christian who is united to Christ so that you will bear more fruit. Hebrews puts it slightly differently, and it says this, my son, my daughter, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves. No discipline seems pleasant at any time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. The pruning of God can be painful, but his purposes is loving so that you'll be more fruitful. The pruning is done so that the Christian will bear much fruit. The question is, though, as we close this morning, is how do we endeavor to stay connected to Jesus, the true vine? The answer is found numerous times throughout these verses. Did you see the one word that repeats itself? It says remain. The following footballers, if you're a buffer uh, into football, the following footballers, Payet, uh, Sado Parino, Barino, isn't it? Jack Livermore, Robert Snodgrass, and good old Robbie Brady. What have they all got in common in January? They all left. They did not remain in their club. They didn't remain in the clubs that they were. They moved away, having signed their contracts, having given their allegiance and life over to the club. They walked away. They didn't remain. And the word remain here in John 15, verses 1 to 17, occurs 11 times. And it's always connected with the phrase, remain in me, remain in my love, remain in the true vine. Don Carson explains what this means when we talk about remaining in Jesus. He says, continuous dependence on the vine, constant reliance upon him, persistent spiritual imbibing of his life. God remains among and in his people by renewing them with his life, with his spirit, and making his presence known in them and among them that they may remain by obeying his commands. Remaining in Jesus means dependence on him, reliance upon his word, his life, his spirit, it is the opposite of independence. And what does this life look like? What does a life of remaining look like? All you have to do is look at verses 9 to 17. Because here we have Jesus modeling to us what a life of remaining looks like. Jesus remained in his Father's love by being obedient. Through obedience, he remained in the love of the Father. And so we follow in our master and teacher's way in how we remain with him by being obedient to his will and purposes, which we find in his word. What does God want me to do in this situation, this decision? What is God's word saying to me about my heart attitude, my behavior, my life? Look at his word. And one practical example of how we remain in his love through following his commands is to take to heart and practice what is said in John 15, 12, where he has repeated, love each other as I have loved you. It is a very similar command to that which found in verse thir chapter 13, to love others. What did Jesus do? He laid down his life for them. We didn't choose him, but he chose us. And so to remain in him, we need to follow his word and example by loving each other as Christ loved us. That means giving ourselves for the sake of others' needs and rights and concerns. We cannot do this, though, apart from him. Newbegin, in his commentary on John, says this, the disciples of Jesus will learn obedience 
by following Jesus in the same kind of moment-by-moment obedience to the will of the Father as it is disclosed in the convenient happenings of daily life in the place and time where God has put them. That's it. Being obedient to God wherever he has placed you, learning that obedience of his word. But remember also that Jesus' obedience to his Father's will brought joy. And Jesus here in these verses, in verse 11, tells us, as we follow him, as we remain in him, we will have the joy of Jesus in us. Many of us think obedience means no happiness, no joy. The opposite is true. Jesus, in following his Father's will, in pleasing him in everything, had great joy. And so if Jesus has joy, then those who are grafted into his life will experience the same joy as they follow his word and commands. The life of the Christian is so inextricably connected with Jesus that we cannot bear fruit without him. We cannot be connected with God, the Father, without Jesus. We cannot live the Christian life without, being, without him being our lives. Remaining in him means abandoning ourselves to him in all circumstances, situations. And we remain in him, it will mean knowing his will and purpose so that we'll pray in line with the purposes of God. As we finish this morning, let me finish with some questions before we sing uh, our final hymn. These are searching questions as I've tried to search my own heart and life. Is there evidence for gospel-bearing fruit in your life? Have you drifted from Jesus? Not as dependent as you once were, not as reliant on him, Is obedience an issue for you in a particular circumstance or situation or relationship? What do we need to confess? Jesus says to us today, I am the true vine, my father's the gardener. I am the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me, you can do nothing apart from me. Let me pray for us as we continue in our service. Lord God, thank you for drawing us to yourself Thank you for uniting us to Christ through his death and resurrection. And Lord, we confess our independence, our self-sufficiency, our arrogance in thinking that we can live this Christian life without you, without you being the very source of life to us. Lord, help us to remain in you. Help us to see in your son's life that way of being utterly dependent on you as we obey your will and purposes as contained in your word, so that whatever fruit is produced in any of our lives, it will be to your glory and honor. Father, we can do nothing without you. Help us, Lord, to remain in the vine. Help us, Lord, to be dependent and reliant on your Son, the Lord Jesus, for the glory and honor of your name we pray. Amen. Amen.